Welcome back to Behavioral Science for Brands, a podcast where we bridge the gap between academia and marketing. Every other week, we sit down and decode the science behind some of America's most successful brands. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Shilton. Today, we're talking convenience, Chinese restaurants, and the danger of choice. Let's get into it. So Richard, the food delivery industry that we know today basically didn't exist 10 years ago. When we were kids, ordering food from a restaurant was almost a harrowing adventure. So what was it like in the UK growing up as a young boy and trying to get something ordered and delivered? What was that experience like? Oh, I think I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So but there was no delivery. No, no, you'd, you'd have to drive to the fish and chip shop. There was no way anyone was coming Do out. Do you so. call in an order in advance or no? No, 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 no. It was like a van. I don't think they'd had a phone attached <laughs> to it. I mean, good luck doing that. Yeah. And, and how about with your kids growing up? Was delivery a little different then? Oh, um, I mean, they are. They're heavy users of Uber Eats and delivery. Yeah, I think they spend half their money on it. <laughs> <laughs> in America at least in suburban America where I grew up in the 80s, uh, delivering, here's what it was like to order a pizza. First, you would have to look up the phone number of the pizza place in the yellow book. You would find the yellow book phone number and you would call and it would ring and nobody would ever answer. When finally someone at the pizza shop answered, you had maybe a 50% confidence that they actually (laughs) knew what you wanted when you ordered it. Then... They would hang up the phone and you'd have no idea how long it would take for the pizza to get to you. And when the pizza did arrive, you would have to pay in cash to which the driver would never have any change. So, I mean, this was a complex, inefficient and and challenging system, which is why delivery was not a very popular way to get food in America for a very long time. Then comes food delivery services powered by the internet and the ability to use apps in the cell phone to make it easier. And this really explodes in popularity during the COVID-19 pandemic when people were shuttered in place and food delivery gave you a chance to get food from the outside world brought to your home. Let's dive in and specifically learn about Uber Eats. We've done an episode on Uber before, but we didn't we really talked about the the ride sharing part of Uber. So let's talk a little bit more about Uber Eats. Uber Eats is launched in 2014 by Uber, and the concept is they're using their drivers to now be couriers ferrying meals from restaurants to homes. They're doing this in their cars, scooters, bikes, or even on foot. Today, as of 2021, Uber Eats is operating in 6,000 cities across 45 countries. And Uber Eats grew massively because of the pandemic. It doubled its revenue, going from $3.9 billion in 2020 to $8.3 billion in 2021. And to put that in perspective, Richard, Uber Eats did $8.3 billion in revenue in 2021. That was 48% of Uber's overall revenue of $17 billion. So in a time where ride sharing was significantly depressed because of the pandemic, Uber was still thriving as a company because of Uber Eats. Currently, Uber Eats is the leading food delivery service in the world with over 100 million active users and partnering with 600,000 restaurants globally. So this is a big operation, clearly tapping into a desire that 
developed nations want to have to get food brought to them. But getting there and getting people to adopt a food delivery service is really leveraging a lot of behavioral science. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a brilliant case study for behavioral science. And they use a lot of different biases throughout the process. Um, prioritizing ease over appeal is, is, is one broad area. I think we've touched on that quite a lot in other episodes. So the area that I think we could focus on today is a subset of Uber Eats, and it's how they design their menus. Now, the biggest issue they have to overcome when you pull up Uber Eats, you look at various different restaurants, is an idea called choice paralysis. Mm. So the original experimentation goes back, I think it was to two, year 2000, and some work done by Sheena Iyengar and I think it's Mark Lepper. Mm-hmm. What they do, they recruit a fancy supermarket in America, Traeger's, and they set up a store selling jam. And sometimes that store has six different varieties of jam for sale. Sometimes there's 24 varieties. And the key findings are, first of all, the about 28% more people stop when there's that large variety of jam. Now, that fits with classical economics, the idea that if you give people a wide range of things to pick from, something's more likely to grab their attention. It's more likely to fulfill the audience's needs. But the second part of the experiment was more interesting. Not looking at what was the best thing to stop people and get their attention, but what led to the greatest sales. And there they found the complete opposite. They found that there were 10 times the level of sales when there was the table selling the restricted amount of jam, just six jams. Yeah. So they termed this issue choice paralysis, sometimes known as the paradox of choice. It's essentially the idea, if you give people so many options that the act of picking becomes onerous, people tend to throw up their hands, Mm. walk away, and they can't be bothered to, to deal with the hassle. Now, that's an issue for Uber Eats as an entire entity, and for every one of the individual brands that sits on that platform. Because many of those restaurants will have hundreds of different items. So they have to get around this problem of choice paralysis. The leper experiment I mentioned was extreme. And I think it got some controversy because later studies couldn't replicate that tenfold variation Mm. of behavior. Mm. But if we move from individual studies to what's the most powerful unit in behavioral science, which are meta-analyses. Right, which is, means the study of many analyses combined together. Absolutely. Yeah. So an academic will look at all the high-quality papers on this particular topic and see what the key themes are. Mm. And there was a recent meta-analysis of choice paralysis done by Chernev. And what he found was a really interesting nuance for brands, which was... It's not the amount of choice that's the problem. It's how you structure the choice. So you could just give people a long list of 100 items and they will be befuddled, irritated, and not bother purchasing. Or you could structure those items in such a way that you make it easy for people to highlight one or two particular dishes. And that avoids the problem of choice paralysis. So for example, there's the principle of the von Restorff effect we notice what's distinctive. Mm -hmm. So if you give people 100 items, just colouring five or six in a different hue or boxing them or a different font, that makes them easy to spot. Or social proof, highlighting an item that is most popular. 
Now, we know that people tend to follow what they think the common course of behavior is. So if you go down through Uber Eats, you'll often see most popular, you know. I actually did this. Yeah, I did this before the episode started. And I went through and I screenshotted some of the most commonly used things on Uber Eats. Free item if you spend $40 or more. Spend $20 and save $5. Buy one, get one free. Number one most liked. Number two most liked. Really using as many delineations or monikers that they can to separate certain food items from the rest. Yeah, and I think part of the success of that is simple distinctiveness. You highlight one thing with whatever adjective around it, and it will become more popular because you've made it easier to spot that one. But the one that you mentioned around number one or number two choice, that idea of social proof, emphasizing popularity, that has been shown to be very effective in the restaurant setting. So there is a 2009 study by a Duke University psychologist called Hanmin Fang, and he worked with Chinese restaurants. And sometimes in the restaurant, they put one of the items as being chef's pick. Mm -hmm. Other diners saw exactly the same item, but it was referenced as most popular. And what he found is there were significant more sales when an item was highlighted as popular rather than as a chef's recommendation. So it went from, I think, 13% of people picking the chef's recommendation. It was 20% who picked the item when it was referred to as most popular. When it had that moniker. Exactly. So... If you are trying to design a menu and you want people to pick an item, maybe it's one that's got lots of margin for you, talk about how popular it is and it will become more popular still. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I even noticed when I was preparing for today's episode, a lot of the buy one, get one freeze on Uber Eats are on very high profit items, you know, French fries, chicken wings, where it's a very low cost to produce, but high, high profit. Where selling buy one, get one free may not make much of a difference to the retailer anyway. Yeah. And there, there's probably a nice bit of, you're not going to go to McDonald's and not buy a burger or a yep. pizza restaurant, not get a pizza, but you might skip the chicken skip wings. The chipping wings. Yeah. So that's the thing you need to focus your discount on, not the reason that they're there anyway. Yeah. You know, and, you know, when you were talking about the Chinese restaurant menu and creating this moniker, it made me think of going to a nicer restaurant and getting that wine yeah. book. Yeah. And when you look at the oh wine God, book, yeah. page after page of wines that if you're not an expert in wine, it becomes overwhelming, almost par- paralyzing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've never thought about the, the wine book, but I wonder if the purpose of that is almost to make you feel un- so uncomfortable that you're grateful when the sommelier comes around. That's what I was going to say. With yeah. his very high-priced uh, uh, recommendations. Yeah. Unless you take the Homer Simpson approach where <laughs> yeah, he yeah. says, I'll have your second least expensive wine. Yeah. I don't want the cheapest wine on the menu. <laughs> yeah. I just want the second, the yes. second cheapest. Uh, whether or not this is backed in data or science, but I've certainly heard people claim that that is the worst choice to go for because you know, this is this is an example of game theory. Restaurateurs know that people go for the second cheapest one. So that's the one that they have the highest markup on. It's probably often you're getting a better quality wine if you buy the cheapest. It's certainly the, the rumor. That, that, this is game theory, not behavioral science, <laughs> yeah. but fascinating nonetheless. 
So, you know, Richard, as we think about the items that we've talked about that Uber Eats has used so far, these are all kind of statements of fact. You get this money off, top, you know, first most popular item, second most popular item. But that's not the only monikers they use. They also have... Yeah. I've never heard anyone say the word moniker so much either. <laughs> what shall we call it? The I don't know, label. The label. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. we'll use a, a less a less hard to spell word. You know, you have this label of trending now. Yeah. Or this label of popular. Yeah. Or limited time. It kind of stretches. If you had to say, you know, the number one top selling item, that's kind of a statement of fact, assuming that we're not going to have people lying to their customers. Yes. But this trending, this popular kind of opens it up to give a little bit more flexibility for the brand to kind of focus on what they want. Yes. So, so you mentioned a few different tactics for ethically steering behavior. The one that I really like is that emphasis on hot right now or trending, Mm. because what that taps into is a nuance of social proof. So psychologists would call it dynamic social proof. And it's the argument that emphasizing momentum of popularity is as powerful or more powerful than just emphasizing scale of popularity. The most relevant study comes from Sparkman and Walton, who were at Stanford. And they did a study in 2017 where they work with a series of cafes in America. And as people go in to the cafe, half of the diners on their table see a little poster which says, Uh, three out of 10 Americans are making effort to limit their meat consumption. Mm -hmm. So that message emphasizes meat-free eating as a minority behavior. And in that setup, 17% of people order meat-free. Next set of diners, the post on their table has the same statistic, basically, three out of 10. But it is prefaced with... Uh, In the last five years, more and more Americans are trying to limit their meat consumption. Now, three out of 10 do so. They're making it a more positive association. Yeah, positive. And emphasizing it's a growing number. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a small volume, it's small but growing. Yep. And in that setup, there is an exact doubling of meat-free ordering. So we're up to 34% of people ordering meat-free. So that use of trending and hot right now Mm. doesn't just, as you say, open up the use of it to a far broader set of behaviors. It's not just your most popular dish. You can pitch, pick a fast-growing and high-margin dish. But actually, the experiment seems to suggest it might be an even more effective way than just talking about most popular. So picking up on that idea of margin, Richard, what are other ways that brands can use to get people to pay more for, the, for, for higher margin items? Mm. There's a lot from behavioral science on that topic. There's an awful lot on the the psychology of price and encouraging people to spend that little bit more. Probably the broadest theme is the idea that when people view prices, they do so relatively, not absolutely. So by that, I mean $4.99 for a tub of ice cream is neither good value or bad value. It depends on what you compare it to. Right. That's not speculation. You and I did a study last year, maybe year before, for Consumer Behaviour Lab. Yes. Recruited 404 Americans, split them into two groups. Mm-hmm. First group saw a tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream for three ninety nine, and next to it was some Walmart's ice cream for one ninety nine. Mm-hmm. And when people were asked how good value they thought the Ben and Jerry's was, we saw that fifty two percent of people thought it was good or great value. So fifty two percent. Next set of people, completely fresh group, they're shown exactly the same 
Ben and Jerry's variety, same size, same price. But next to it is some super fancy Halo top ice cream for, what was it, four ninety nine. Right, a little bit more. Now, when that group are asked how good value they think Ben and Jerry's is, you see a significant change. We've now got 77% of people saying it's good or great value. That's interesting because it's exactly the same product. All that you've changed is the salient comparison set. So what that study suggests is your role as a marketer is to accept that people's mental comparison set your product is flexible. And if you can shift that mental comparison set to something that is more expensive than average, people's willingness to pay will increase. Yes. You know, there's a there's a fascinating study about the size of coffee cups and yeah. people will choose the medium size, whether that medium size is 10 ounces, 12 ounces, or 16 ounces, so long as it's the middle size, they gravitate yes. towards that. I think it might be a, a Dilip Soman study. Yeah. And one of the nice things he did at the end of that study was ask people, why should be the middle one? They go, well, it's the right size, you get enough of a jolt of caffeine, but it's not too big for my bladder. So people give these very rational explanations for purchase about caffeine and volume, but his study shows you know, it's nothing to do with that. It's about the fact that the, the reason in question yeah. has given a bigger one and a smaller one as an option. Yeah. yeah, fascinating, isn't it? So this is really interesting for Uber Eats and for menu design, but not everybody that's listening to the podcast are restaurateurs or working in brands in food service. So how can we take these lessons and apply it more broadly? That principle of prices being relative rather than absolute, that can definitely be applied mm. in lots of different mm. settings. The, my favorite recent example is a brilliant German one from the German railway company, Deutsche Bahn. And what they tried to do in 2019 was encourage people to holiday at home. So they wanted them to visit German tourist sites rather than flying abroad. So imagine I'm living in Berlin. What they did is they scraped my Facebook data and they saw where I'd been researching. So maybe I've been researching for a holiday in Colorado. And they would show me an image of a site, a tourist site in Colorado, and then they would overlay the flight price, real-time data from Skyscanner. And then in real time, they scraped Getty Images and Getty Images have hundreds of millions of pictures, they found a remarkably similar-looking site in Germany. Brilliant. They serve that next to the Colorado yeah. tourist site, and then they put the rail fare over the top. Obviously less money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, yeah, yeah. So uh, to the order of magnitude of 50 or 100. Now, what's so interesting about that is what most marketers would have done if they were given the brief how do I get people to holiday at home? What most people would have done was just show those Germans beautiful pictures of German tourist sites and told them the train fare. Right, no comparison. Exactly. And without the comparison, people will latch onto their own. And the natural one, unless the brand states it, is probably a tank of petrol. And the 19 or 20 euros it would cost to get the train isn't great value compared to the tank of petrol. But suddenly, by throwing in this transatlantic flight comparison of 1,000 plus euros, the 19 euros for the train fare feels like a rounding error. By adding a comparison number, you can make your existing price 
appear tiny. Now, that seems very, very simple, but people would only think of using it if they believe prices are perceived relatively, like our ice cream study showed. If you think people just weigh up the value of your product, the qualities it imbues versus the amount you're asking for, you would think the comparison is unnecessary. So once you accept prices are relative, not absolute, it becomes a very, very obvious thing to do. But until you've accepted that, it would feel like a waste of time to do such behavior. And it would be our opinion that this applies as much to travel as it does to electronics purchases, technology. It doesn't matter the category. It's the way consumers perceive value. Yes, yes. So the real life example in train fares, and there's a really nice, we'll put a, a link to the Contagious article that has a lot of the, the numbers on the, on the performance of that campaign. There are Tversky experiments, as you said, about electronics. There's the Dilipsoman experiment with coffee. There's a Thaler study on popcorn. There is a really wide range of experiments that show the same point. And people will judge your prices partly on what you give them, but partly on what comparison set springs to mind. So make sure the comparison set that they are immediately thinking of is to your advantage. Right. And as advertisers and marketers, it's up to us to set the frame. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you see that, I think with a you know, really simple study we did, it doesn't take much. People are naturally grasping for a comparison set. You've just got to put a handy one in front of them. So Richard, at the end of every episode, we like to wrap up and summarize the key takeaways for our listeners. So what are the things we most want them to remember about this episode? First, choice is not unambiguously good. There becomes a stage that if you keep on giving people more and more variety, more and more different offerings, you have made the act of picking effortful and often people will avoid effort. Right. So be careful of excess choice. Secondly, Think about if you are giving people a large variety of different options, you can then use various different triggers or tactics to encourage people to pick the highest margin items. On a menu, highlight, uh, make distinctive the most expensive items. Make sure you label high margin items as popular or, or growing in popularity. And then finally, maybe the idea that has the largest potential effect. Remember that prices are relative, not absolute. If you can shift your customer's mental comparison set for your products, you can change their willingness to pay by orders of magnitude. Great takeaways. Thanks so much for those. What an understatement to say that this is a episode that makes everybody hungry thinking about all the ways Uber Eats gets food delivered. I thought we might do a fun trivia round, Richard. I've got some research from Uber. What is the number one most popular food item from Uber Eats this past year? Are we talking cuisine? We're talking actual food, actual item in the cart, the most popular item in the cart. I'll get French fries. Correct. I was going to say, if it was cuisine, I was thinking it's got to be between burger and pizza. And then French fries goes across multiple cuisines, something. So you got French fries as number one. The second most popular you got it is pizza. Can you guess the third most popular food item? Well, I would have said burger, but you'd have given me that. So I'm not going for that. Don't go go and skip it. I haven't mentioned that, so I'm not going for burger. I'm not wasting that answer. Um, Most popular item. I mean, it's got to be a drink then, hasn't it? Coca-Cola. Good guess. Sushi. 
is our third most popular really? food item order on an Uber Eats. I it would is. never have gone for that. I was always going to make a joke. Like, the thing I order most is um, poke. I love yeah. poke. Yeah. So I kind of thought that would be We had it for lunch today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed. I'm absolutely amazed by that. Isn't that interesting? Last trivia question. Most popular day of the week to order Uber Eats. Uh, now, I've got to be honest here because I think I saw or, or I think either you or someone mentioned this. I think someone's told me this. I think you told me it was Friday. So I it think is. I've seen that on Friday is yeah. the answer. Yeah. Fair enough. He's an honest <laughs> <Yeah>. trivia contestant, <laughs> folks. Honest trivia contestant. Friday. Really fun. Thanks for tuning in today for this episode of Behavioral Science for Brands. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Shotton. If you've used price relativity to help grow your brand, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at hello at theconsumerbehaviorlab.com or drop us a comment on any of our social channels. Behavioral Science for Brands is brought to you today by Method One, a digital first marketing company that brings science to the art of persuasion. They are behavior change experts who solve business challenges by creating meaningful connections with consumers. Method One has deep disciplines across many brand categories to unlock behavior change that fuels brand growth. Visit them at methodone.com.